Hello, everyone. Did you notice something is back? That's right. Terrell, the fantastic mind behind the Health Science for the Rest of Us podcast, helped me out and helped out this podcast in general. She was able to bring back my intro music. So it is back from the dead. And I personally am forever grateful. And you have a bunch of stickers headed your way, Terrell. Go listen to her podcast for goodness sake. It's fun. It's informative. It is everything I wish, well, this podcast actually was. So here we are. New week, new episode. Same old Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host for this week's new episode of People Are Wild, a podcast I keep telling people is like paella, a little bit of something for everybody. I think. I hope. Now, in my true fashion, I have lit my Judge Lynn Toller prayer candle. Smells like couples coming together. Ew, wait, no. <laughs> She's the judge on divorce court. I I meant reconciliation. Let's just move on. And I have listened to Billie Eilish's Bad Guy on a loop repeat for about an hour. So I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. Okay, so originally I was going to do something a little bit different for this week's newest episode, but that abruptly shifted gears for me because in doing this podcast, even when I go back and I try and do stories that have been around for a while, it takes a bit more time for me to put information together. And so that's why I had a little bit of a delay. I was working on another episode, actually. I'd, I've been working on it for a couple weeks. And then suddenly, sometimes things just kind of fall in your lap. So I always try and highlight stories and cases that, for the most part, are tidy. They have a beginning, middle, and ending to them. They have a, a start and a resolution for the most part. But this one today caught my attention and the ending, even maybe even going back, the middle part, are still all up in the air. There's a lot of moving parts, but consider this sort of an introduction of sorts towards a case that is going to be really zoned in on going into next year and something that I know personally I'm going to be following closely with. So without further ado, let's get into it. When you come to the hospital, you are trusting your life and your health, your well-being, your livelihood to people who have training education, and experience to make the best decisions on your behalf. For the most part, healthcare providers operate from the angle of wanting to take care of people. I always say, I personally didn't set out to be a nurse, but I knew from an early age that I wanted to work within the healthcare field in some way. Now, a lot of people who work in this profession will tell you that they have a pull of some sort towards healthcare. They want to help others, and then they take oaths as they go further and further in their training to do no harm while providing this help. But occasionally, someone breaks that trust in the healthcare field. Nurses like Charles Cullen use their position to satisfy their own urges to kill and harm others. Dr. Christopher Dunch, aka Dr. Death, will use their title and clout to move from facility to facility, leaving a trail of anger, frustration, and fatalities in their wake. These types of black widow healthcare providers pop up and get apprehended, which leaves the rest of us to wonder why a person would do such a thing. 
Why get into the profession of helping others only to create chaos? Is it to scratch some sort of hero or god complex? Is it because sociopaths can hide behind suits, white coats, and scrubs? Or does it stem from a place that we don't even want to begin to open up in order to understand those actions? It's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. This is not a murder case. As uh, Dr. Hughes' entire adult life has been to help and save people. He and a team of people at Mount Carmel did their best in the ICU for end-of-life patients as well as every other patient that came there. Um, so that's all I can say right right now. It's not a murder case. So do you, but do you hear 1,000 micrograms in some cases, in one case 2,000 micrograms of fentanyl, mm -hmm. and a lot of medical experts say that that is exorbitant. No, it's not a murder case. That's all I can say. Do you believe he should be charged with any crimes? No, absolutely not. What are the next steps for him? Uh, Self-surrendered today, he'll be processed, and we'll take it from there. We'll uh, have to deal with this in trial. Uh, why was it important for him to turn himself in here today as opposed to any other method? Oh, he's been cooperating with the authorities from day one. He uh, surrendered a passport a few months ago when they asked. He's here. He was av available for them at all times. Why did he prescribe such high doses? I can't speak about that. Was there any mercy uh, motive involved? I can assure you, there's never any attempt to euthanize anyone by Dr. Huser. At no time did he ever have the intent to euthanize anyone. Does he believe he'll ever practice medicine again? I don't know. In, in, your, in your opinion, what is the accepted dosage of fentanyl um, after someone's been taken off the bench? I'm just a lawyer. I'm the last person on the planet to ask that question to. But I have to go. How, how, how do you defend a case though with 25 murder charges? How, do, how, how does that make this different from any other case? William Husel stood in a courtroom filled with media, cameras capturing his every motion from the moment he set foot in that Ohio courthouse on June 5th, 2019. He was dressed in a nice suit, and his hair was slightly messy as his attorneys proceeded to direct him with what would be occurring shortly. He was turning himself over to police in Columbus, Ohio, after charges were brought against him for murder, 25 counts of murder to be more precise. The next time he appeared was later that day, in a courtroom before a judge. He was dressed in an ill-fitting khaki jail top and dark pants wearing handcuffs as he was being led in by law enforcement. He looked exhausted, dark circles underneath his eyes, but he stood tall with confidence as he entered into a not guilty plea. The judge set his bail at $1 million, and he was led out of the courtroom. Two days later, on Friday, June 7th, he posted his bond and was released from Franklin County Jail as he awaited trial. William Husel might seem to be a serial killer who will finally be held accountable for his crimes. But it goes beyond that, because William Husel knew every single one of his victims. He knew their families and friends, and he was entrusted to taking care of these people in their time of great need. After all, William Husel took an oath many years ago to do no harm. So how did the physician become an accused murderer? Maybe the best way to try and understand Dr. William Husel is to get to know him when he was just Billy. 
He was a standout basketball player during his time in high school at St. Ignatius, graduating in 1994 and venturing out of Ohio as a young adult to attend Wheeling Jesuit College in West Virginia. It was there Billy got into trouble. And not just your college kids doing stupid stuff like setting off the fire alarm at 2 a.m. because they were trying to make s'mores in the stairwell type of escapades. Billy and his pal were breaking into cars and stealing things from them. They had a bit of a reputation on campus for doing this. And when one of their victims went to campus security to report that their car had been broken into, this victim gave the police the names of Billy and his friend after having confronted them earlier after that break-in. So, logically, the next step for Billy and his pal were to build a pipe bomb and place it underneath that victim's car. No, seriously. This was what they thought up for their revenge. They got as far as making the pipe bomb, but decided to place it in a trash can on campus instead of underneath that person's car, wherein it detonated and miraculously did not injure anyone, but it did cause damage to the bin itself as well as some nearby structures. As the investigation was ongoing on campus, Billy and his pal decided to plant incriminating evidence in the vehicle of another student and then tell campus security and police that it was that student who was responsible for the break-ins and the pipe bomb. But eventually, stories fell apart and Billy and his friend were charged with a federal misdemeanor regarding building and detonating a bomb. He was sentenced to six months in jail and one year of probation, as well as paying fines. So this happened at around 1996, 1997-ish. And he does end up doing his time for the crime, and he ends up graduating from Ohio State University in 2000 with a degree in microbiology. He then goes to attend Ohio University College, where in 2008, he graduates with a doctorate of osteopathic medicine, which makes him a DO. And I refuse to even open up that Pandora's box of being an MD or being a DO and what is different and what is this and what is that and what should be noted at the end of the day is that both avenues require rigorous training and education in order to attain that title of doctor. It's not like meeting a guy who says he's a doctor, and then you find out that he took two weekend online seminars to be a chiropractor and still insists on making everyone address him as doctor, including yourself, on your first date. Not saying it happened to me, but it might have. MDs and DOs actually go to medical school for years, do residency for years, and can choose to specialize and pursue whatever their heart desires within medicine and healthcare. In fact, the American Osteopathic Association says, quote, DOs are fully licensed physicians who practice in all areas of medicine. Emphasizing a whole person approach to treatment and care, DOs are trained to listen and partner with their patients to help them get healthy and stay well, end quote. So that's that on that. Now for Billy, after he graduates from Ohio University College, he is now Dr. William Husel. And he ends up doing his residency and later fellowship in critical care at the Cleveland Clinic back in Ohio, which lasts from 2008 until 2013. After this time, he takes a position to work in the critical care unit of Mount Carmel West Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Husel was to be the new critical care intensivist that would put Mount Carmel West on the map 
and in the headlines, but for all the wrong reasons. But when he started in 2013, there was a sense of excitement surrounding this fresh-faced, friendly, handsome young doctor. It should be noted that at this point, Dr. Husel is rated by his previous employer as excellent and exemplary on his performance reviews. Dr. Husel also comes into the Mount Carmel system having a background in anesthesiology, but he was never actually board certified within it. His bread and butter was intensive care and critical care units. Colleagues would describe him as being even keeled and approachable, as he would love to educate about new techniques on something he learned about in terms of taking care of critical care patients. He was well-respected and popular within the hospital. And just as an aside, he's not a bad-looking guy. And for me, if I'm at work and need to call a doc at like 3 a.m. and he answers my page in an actual pleasant, nice, friendly way, and then comes in as soon as possible to the unit to physically see his patient, well, it's easy to see why Dr. Husel was so well-regarded. Now, a nurse who spoke on the condition of anonymity for fear of retaliation from their respective hospital spoke about working with Dr. Husel during that time at Mount Carmel West. And I'm just going to go ahead and read what they said verbatim from an article from the Dispatch, which, by the way, the Dispatch is a publication based out of Ohio that has been doing amazing research with regards to this whole entire case. I'm going to try and post as many links as possible to their articles in the show notes. So just go ahead and give that a read if you can. But if not, let's go ahead and let me summarize things for you because that's how we roll, right? So from their article, the nurse who worked with Husel said she liked to share shifts with him because he would explain issues such as why he prescribes certain medications, the settings on a breathing machine, or the physiology behind new tactics he tried to stabilize patients. The nurse would go on to say that he's highly intelligent and he likes to educate. She said she's been told that the initial complaint on Husel was related to his angry reaction when nurses said they could not administer a medication that most nurses are not qualified to administer. The highest doses of fentanyl she remembers giving under his orders was 200 micrograms, which we'll get to that in just a second. Now that dose gave this nurse pause, but she administered it after reviewing the patient chart and seeing that such a dose would not be unusual. If a doctor had ordered doses of 1,000 micrograms, as has been reported by lawyers representing some of the patient families, the nurse said, I would think, have you lost your mind? Did you mistype a zero? I would never give it because I know I'd kill them, she would go on to say. And Dr. Husel, she said, was regarded as a cool, muscled, good-looking doctor from the Cleveland Clinic who drew a core of group of buddies. I thought he's just full of himself because he's intelligent and good looking and fit, but I never got God complex from him. She would go on to also say that he wore scrubs that showed off his upper arms where he had a tattoo. And I left that in because I just immediately imagined Dr. Husel was the Todd from Scrubs. Maybe you are too. And if you are, congratulations, we are on the same wavelength. But whereas Scrubs was fiction and 
shockingly actually really true to form about what actually happens in the hospital, the all too real signs of something odd and possibly dangerous was starting to emerge with Dr. Husel's arrival at Mount Carmel West. And it wouldn't take long before cracks began to show in the seemingly strong foundation he put down in that critical care unit. As mentioned by the anonymous nurse who used to work with Dr. Husel, his medication orders were concerning to his colleagues. Now we come to the part where I'm going to try not to get too technical, but I might end up doing so. And for that, I pre-apologize. The whole crux of this case against Dr. Husel is, did he endanger and purposely kill patients by giving and ordering high doses of fentanyl to these people? So get ready for this because it's time to get a crash course into the land of fentanyl. So fentanyl is a prescribed pain medication that falls into the category of a narcotic. It is a synthetic opioid in that it's on the opioid family tree, did a 23andMe test, and turns out we are all related through the beautiful poppy seed. However, it is a bit further down the line for pain control than, say, chewing on a bunch of poppy seeds. It's a way more refined and way more potent medication. In fact, it is advertised as being 100 times more potent than morphine. You hear that train in the background? That's like fentanyl hitting your veins because it does go, go, goes. But I said it was prescribed, right? For the most part, people who get their hands on fentanyl do so based off a prescription. In cases of severe pain, fentanyl patches can be placed on a patient, but even those patches have specific doses and specific directions on how long they could be kept on. There's also fentanyl lollipops that exist, which I've actually given to pediatric patients in order to sedate them before doing a procedure. And again, that amount is based off of the weight of that pediatric patient. So before you start thinking we're just handing out lollipops recklessly, like it's trick or treat, here's a fentanyl lollipop. This is a well-regulated medication within the hospital system. And taking a further step back, safe dosages is key to any medication across the board. But when it comes to certain types of medication, you triple check yourself every step of the way. So I'm talking about things like giving insulin, dosages of any medication for any pediatric patient, or any medications that a person's not familiar with giving or doesn't regularly give in their unit, you always continue to check and reference manuals, other people, calling pharmacy, getting as many people in on that medication dose to make sure it's appropriate, make sure it's safe before you administer it. And a lot of that falls down to the nurses. So pain meds are no different from any sort of medication you triple check. And even though I have given fentanyl, I'm saying hundreds, maybe even thousands of times at this point in my career, I still check my orders every single time for every single patient and evaluate if that's an appropriate dose for that patient to receive. Now, for the sake of this episode and my blood pressure, I'm going to be talking about fentanyl as it is administered in the ER and critical care units and as it pertains to this particular case in that it is through an intravenous line, through an IV. I'm not going to go into the other ways fentanyl is administered or used or abused because if I do, 
I will end up elevating my blood pressure to an unsafe level trying to dispel all the myths and misinformation associated with fentanyl. So I'm just going to plow right through that and put a pin on it for a later day, maybe. Now, fentanyl is one of the medications that is measured in micrograms. So let's do a quick math lesson real quick on conversions. For reference, one gram is 1,000 milligrams, and one milligram is 1,000 micrograms. So a typical situation where we would use fentanyl in the ER could go like this. A patient comes in after getting hit by a car. They're conscious and alert, but in a great deal of pain. We need to take them to get imaging for more in-depth look at any potential injuries, especially life-threatening injuries. Fentanyl is ordered because the way it works in the body is that it allows for it to be given repeatedly without having to wait hours in between giving doses. So you can repeat these doses a little bit more rapidly. Now, this is because fentanyl can cross the blood-brain barrier quickly due to its chemical makeup. This means it can provide pain relief rapidly and quickly, but it also means it doesn't stick around long to keep up with that pain response. It goes in quick and it kicks itself out quick in terms of pain relief. It's still in the body for a few hours, so there is caution with redosing, but it's not uncommon to see a doctor put in an order for fentanyl to be given every 15 minutes as needed for pain control for upwards of three or four doses. And maybe that initial dose that you can keep repeating is ordered at 50 micrograms. So this would mean that a patient could get a max dose of 150 micrograms of fentanyl within 45 minutes as needed for pain control. Compare that to an order for pain control that reads 4 milligrams of morphine every 2 to 4 hours as needed for pain. Initially, seeing someone get 150 of something via IV seems like a lot, but fentanyl is measured in micrograms, and other medications like morphine and Dilaudid are measured in milligrams. So 150 micrograms is 0.15 milligrams. That's 15 hundredths of one milligram. So what it boils down to is that you don't need a lot of fentanyl to give pain control when it's dosed appropriately to a patient. And just as a side note, due to the chemical makeup of morphine, it takes it longer to cross the blood-brain barrier to provide pain relief. However, this also means that morphine can take longer to kick out of the system, which means that morphine is a longer-acting pain medicine when compared to fentanyl. However, you don't get as rapid pain relief as you do with fentanyl. So again, you don't need a lot of fentanyl to get pain relief. You can redose it as ordered and if appropriate, but you don't need a lot to manage pain. Now, from a numbers standpoint, 4,000 micrograms of fentanyl would equal 4 milligrams, right? But it does not mean that 4,000 micrograms of fentanyl delivers that same amount of pain relief that 4 milligrams of morphine would. In fact, 4,000 micrograms of fentanyl would kill anyone. Anyone. I'm not even... It's... Yeah. It would kill anyone. You don't need a lot of fentanyl at the end of the day. Remember that. The big takeaway is that you don't need a lot of fentanyl to make an effective 
course of treatment for pain management for people. Now, the narcotic family is full of cousins that look similar to each other, but do their own thing and occasionally show up to the family reunion barbecue. But that's not to say that high doses of pain medications don't exist. It's actually not uncommon for people with chronic pain due to things like cancer to have high doses of pain medicines that they are on regularly. And these people are still alert and awake and make sense and they're coherent and they are mentally all there and can protect their airway. In doing research actually for this episode, I came across an article where a cancer patient who was on home hospice had his fentanyl patches gradually increase to a dosage of 1,000 micrograms per hour where he would have achieved optimal pain control, all while he actually remained mentally coherent and clear-minded. But there is a distinction to be made. In that case, that patient was receiving 1,000 micrograms of fentanyl hourly in a transdermal way, and those patches are good for usually about 72 hours before they need to be replaced. So this patient had built up a tolerance and the increases in adjustments were done gradually and with the guidance of a doctor and an attentive healthcare team. So I want you to imagine having a nurse walk up to your loved one's bedside. Why don't we call this loved one James? And that nurse tells you that they're going to give James some medication through their IV. Now, you've been keeping a vigil at their bedside for the past who knows how many hours. They've been hooked up to the ventilator to help them breathe. The doctor had come in earlier to tell you that things weren't looking great for James. So the doctor wanted to know your thoughts about perhaps placing James on comfort care measures. You were unsure what that meant. So the doctor sat down with you and the family and explained that it meant that if James's heart stopped, there would be no CPR intervention. And the doctor went on to tell you that James will probably never be able to come off that ventilator and breathe on his own. And you and your family, you've been taking turns in James's room, talking with him and talking with each other about what is the best decision for James right now. After all, he's in his 60s and he came into the ER a few days ago with his breathing becoming a bit more difficult, a bit more labored. He ended up needing to be intubated. He had a horrible case of pneumonia, and he's been in the ICU with a diligent team looking after him and caring for him ever since then. But the doctor did seem to be making this weird play, this weird angle, that if nothing would bring back James, the best thing for everyone to do would be to give James a comfort and a peace and pull the plug, it seemed. Now, he didn't necessarily say pull the plug, but he definitely insinuated it. And while it did make sense, it was still so hard to have to make that decision. Back to the scene on hand, you're noticing that the nurse is at the bedside getting ready to administer this medication through the IV. And when you ask what the medication's for, the nurse tells you it's to help keep James comfortable. They had picked up on these cues, and I guess in James's vital signs as well, it seemed as though they could kind of tell that James was uncomfortable, which was amazing because James really hadn't even opened his eyes since the tube was placed. 
so you were grateful that they were giving him something to help him out. And as the nurse left, your family came into the room with the doctor, and you all agreed to take out the tube. James would have hated to be hooked up to a machine indefinitely, and you all gathered together at his bedside after making a decision to do what was best for him one last time. James passes away minutes thereafter, and it wasn't until months later when you see a news report about James's doctor on the nightly news that you realize something might have been amiss with those final hours of James's life. You and your family do some digging and get James's medical records where you find something shocking. The night James died, that nurse that had come in saying that they were giving James some medication to make him more comfortable gave him 1,000 micrograms of fentanyl all at once through his IV. Now, this was before you had formally changed James's status from full code to do not resuscitate. And now you're starting to feel sick to your stomach. Had this dose been a mistake? You talk with a friend who is in healthcare, and that friend tells you that that dosage was way too much for one person, especially for James. He doesn't take medications for pain chronically. He never had any sort of tolerance buildup that would necessitate such a heavy dose of pain medication to be given. And now you're starting to feel angry. Why didn't anyone question this dose before giving it? You decide to contact a lawyer and tell them you'd like to meet as soon as possible to discuss the possibility that your loved one was murdered by Dr. William Husel. Now, while that is a hypothetical situation, it is based off of true accounts of patients and their families who trusted Dr. William Husel between 2013 and 2018 at Mount Carmel West in the critical care unit. After starting there in 2013, it would begin at about February 2015 that Dr. Husel was starting to dig himself a hole. Now again, the dispatch came in clutch and they've actually compiled a timeline of those who are believed to be victims of Dr. William Husel. So let me try and lay it all out for you like they did. Might be basically going verbatim again because they do such a good job. Props to journalists. Okay, so February 10th, 2015, a patient who is still to this day regarded as John Doe dies at Mount Carmel West after being administered 400 micrograms of fentanyl. February 11, 2015, Emma Bogan dies at Mount Carmel West. March 1st, 2015, Jan Thomas dies. May 4th of that year, Norma Welch dies. May 10th, Joanne Belisari dies. April 3rd of 2017, so now we're in 2017, Ryan Hayes dies. October 9th, Three patients die at Mount Carmel West, and one of them was actually not connected to Dr. William Husel, but it is noted that uh, by October 9th, there's three patients who had died. October 11th, Michael Waters, I'm sorry, Michael Walters dies. October 13th, Robert P. Lee dies. November 20th, Thomas Matthews dies. December 5th, Danny Mullet dies. December 10th, Larry Brigner dies. December 11th, Janet Cavanaugh dies. And now we go into 2018, where January 4th, Brandy McDonald and Francis Burke die. March 25th, 
Charles Longstreth dies. April 1st, Sue Hodge dies. May 28th, James Allen dies. July 15th, Troy Allison dies. September 25th, Corina Blake dies. September 30th, Bonnie Austin dies. October 24th, Nick Timmons dies. And it was at this point, on October 25th, that Mount Carmel receives a formal report regarding Dr. William Hussle's care. However, nothing really comes of it because on November 13th, 2018, Sandra Castle dies. November 19th, Rebecca Walls dies. Mount Carmel at this point receives a second formal report regarding Dr. William Hussel and broadens their investigation. So you would think that maybe he'd be suspended. Incorrect. Because on November 20th, Melissa Penix dies. And on November 21st, Mount Carmel receives the third report regarding Dr. William Hussel. And it at this point they finally removed the doctor from direct patient care. December 5th, 2018, Mount Carmel formally fires Dr. Husel, notifying the State Medical Board of Ohio, meets with the Franklin County prosecutor, and it is at that time that they believe 24 of his patients are believed to have received excessive painkiller doses ordered by the doctor. On December 7th of 2018, Mount Carmel notifies the State of Ohio Board of Pharmacy and the Ohio Board of Nursing about some people who should have shown better judgment. Anyways, we will come back around to that one. And on December 11, 2018, the Mount Carmel staff begins training new procedures and updating their existing policies as a result of what had been happening and the deaths that had been happening at the facilities. On December 27th of 2018, Mount Carmel contacts families of affected patients to share information and apologize. And I don't know why, but I, I feel like that's just an empty apology. Can you imagine you are grieving the loss of your loved one? It's December 27th too. This is like right in the peak of holiday season you get a call from the pharmacy, I'm sorry, not from the pharmacy, you get a call from the hospital where your loved one died, where you're thinking that they're connected to Dr. Husel's fatalities that he's done, murders that he potentially might have committed for these patients, and they just go, we're sorry. That's a total CYA move. That's trying not to get sued. Let's just be real. Anyways, like I said, my opinions probably are not based on a lot of fact, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's that's like the biggest CYA move you can pull as a hospital is trying to reach out and trying to be like, please don't sue us. Anyways, December 28th, 2018, Mount Carmel expands their investigation once again and identifies three other patients who might have been affected, bringing the total to 27 people who might have been killed because of these excessive doses of fentanyl being administered. And then January 14th of 2019, Mount Carmel contacts more families to relay more information and make them aware that the information would now be made public. So kind of braces for that impact. And at this point, a lawsuit is filed by Janet Kavanaugh's daughter, alleging wrongful death, negligence, and other counts against Mount Carmel, Dr. Husel, a pharmacist and a nurse, 
And this would be the beginning of the lawsuit train because as of right now, there are heaps of lawsuits against Dr. Husel, Mount Carmel, their parent company, Trinity Health, and various staff members, pharmacists, nurses, who were also on the medical records. There are a lot of civil suits being placed. I think last time I checked, um, Mount Carmel and Trinity Health has had to pay out at least $13.5 million, And that title and that Total, I mean, it's going to probably just keep growing and growing. So at least 28 lawsuits have been filed by this point in January. Well, eventually it'll be at least 28 lawsuits will be filed. Mount Carmel Health System and the parent company Trinity Health announces in 2019 that Dr. Husel has been actually fired as a result of the investigation. And now they are actually pursuing criminal charges, which kicks into gear in that January 15th, 2019, when the actual police department confirms that they're on the case, January 22nd, 2019, Dr. Husel actually attends an investigative conference with the representatives of the state medical board. He asserts constitutional right against self-incrimination when asked about knowledge of lethal doses of fentanyl and of the toxic effect of fentanyl mixed with a benzodiazepine. So basically, he is invoking his right to remain silent with the medical board, which trickles down into everything else, because he has never given a statement, even through his lawyers at this time, at this recording. There's never been anything that he has placed out there because he is still being investigated by that Ohio medical board. Now, on January 25th, 2019, the State Medical Board of Ohio does suspend Dr. Husel's license. And prior to this, the Department of Medicaid suspends their agreement with the doctor, preventing him from treating any beneficiaries. By the end of January, there's a letter to Mount Carmel West from the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Good old CMS. I have choice words for them. Anyways, it says that Medicare participation could be terminated due to pharmaceutical services deficiencies, quote, so serious they constitute an immediate threat to patient health and safety, end quote. This basically makes any hospital shake in their boots because that can mean that your hospital closes down, essentially. So Mount Carmel eventually proves it meets the standards of the federal agency. They had been doing remediation. They had been doing training for at least a few months, few weeks. If they started in December of the year before and and it goes into January, they've had a good four to six weeks of, of retraining people and cleaning house and getting people held accountable or at least starting to. So they are still deemed appropriate enough to continue to function and to operate as a hospital. February 13th, 2019, State Medical Board of Ohio issues Dr. Husel a letter saying it intends to determine whether it will take further action up to permanent revocation on his suspended license. February 20th, the attorneys say some families recall Dr. Husel telling them their loved ones were brain dead and contend he likely did not follow protocols for determining brain death, which would take more than a few hours. So just real quick on that. There are a few of the cases that they found out through 
analysis and investigative work that a lot of the patients that are reported in, in part of the 25 murder counts, they say that during their investigation, there might have been as many as 35 to 40, I believe, and six of them might have actually had a different course, but they were under the impression, the families were under the impression that their loved ones were brain dead, so they were making decisions based on that fact that they were told by Dr. Husel, and then they went back and they determined that he did not follow the protocols for determining brain death. That is a whole different topic in regards to how do you determine brain death, but there are certain things that you look for. There are certain scores you do and there are certain procedures that you must do for people before you can pronounce them brain dead. And then they found out that Dr. Husel did not do this and he still told families that their loved ones were brain dead and that the best thing to do would be to do comfort measures and end of life and do not resuscitate. And of course, family members trust the doctor. So this coming out really kind of tears you up. Now, February 22nd, 2019, Mount Carmel and Trinity Health say that they have now identified 35 patients who received excessive doses with 29 potentially fatal. And then it is at this point, like I said before, that they said that a few of the patients had opportunities for treatment that may have improved their conditions. Again, that just would tear you up as a family member, would tear you up as a healthcare provider, knowing that somebody that is in that position of being a doctor did not do what was best for the patient, did not do patient-centered care, and and the family ultimately is left with so many questions while they're trying to grieve this and, and make sense of this. So February 27th, 2019, Dr. Husel's attorney, Richard Blake, confirms Dr. Husel has voluntarily provided his passport, so he turned over his passport, and that actually was the attorney that was in the sound clip that played previously. That was Richard Blake. As of right now, he has some different defense attorneys going on, but that was his initial defense attorney who has some other choice quotes um, and, and other things that he did initially for Dr. Husel. So March 13th, 2019, Mount Carmel Health System announces that it has reported four dozen pharmacists and nurses to state licensing boards. More than 30 employees were put on leave. And on March 14th, the very next day, the Ohio Board of Nursing sends notices to 25 of those nurses. Those nurses stand to face disciplinary action that could include anything from reprimands and remediation to permanent license revocations or fines of up to $500 per violation. And I just had to tell you that when I saw that, I wrote in all caps, as it should be. Um, and I'll get into that in just a second. But the nurses involved, the pharmacists involved, well, we'll get into what happens and, and how Dr. Husel was able to bypass a lot of these protocols and a lot of the things that are supposed to be put in there. But at the end of the day, a lot of it came down to people not standing their ground when they should have. So June 5th, 2019, 
we go back to the first part of this episode so many minutes ago. Dr. Husel is charged with those 25 counts of murder. He does turn himself into police. June 7th, he is released on bond. And that's kind of where the story picks up, ends, stays, pauses. Because right now, I need to tidy it up here because there's a lot of loose ends. And we are not even at trial yet. Um, But the dispatch has been amazing with making this timeline of events. Definitely going to get some links to that in the show notes. Check that out. It goes a little bit more in depth, a lot of bit more in depth, actually, I should say. So I'm going to try and expand and make things a little bit more tidy and answer some questions that I had that you might be having. So just for reference, Dr. Husel was married in September 2013 And that lasted until April 2016 before he was divorced. And then in a couple articles I read, he actually apparently got married for the third time sometime in 2017. And as far as I can piece together, they're still together. Now, his first marriage was a Vegas one when he was younger, and that didn't last long. But the last two, he was married Both of his ex-wives of his last two marriages were nurses that he worked with. He worked with them. And his third wife, his latest wife, was actually one of the nurses who has a civil lawsuit filed against her because she was one of the nurses who administered a high dose of fentanyl that was ordered by her now husband, doctor. What? Are you kidding me? I, uh, (laughs) I can't. This just seems like a messy situation. To quote the amazing doctor now, this is a very bad situation. And even though the doctor has been married three times, he actually does not have any children with any of the women that he's been with. There's no children in play as far as anybody's reported or as far as Dr. Husel's disclosed. So if you're wondering if there's people in his immediate circle beyond his wives. Uh, It seems at this point, it's mostly his close friends, his family, and his wives and his ex-wives and his current wife. Now, doubling back on the involvement of other staff members. Okay. I had to like pace before I did this because we need to go into this. So you might be thinking to yourself, Yes, Dr. Husel ordered these high doses of fentanyl and they're really, they zoned in on those major doses going from like 400 micrograms, 500 micrograms to 2000 micrograms to be given on one dose to one patient via IV. These are major doses being given to people who do not have any sort of tolerance. When they looked into these patients' charts, a vast majority of them were what we call narcotic naive. They're people who don't take narcotics in high doses regularly like some people do for various ailments, conditions, pain management. These are people who came into the hospital and now suddenly they are not necessarily leaving to go home in a way. They unfortunately die at the hospital and now they are connected to a man that had some weird particular desire, I guess, to do these high doses of fentanyl. And we'll get into this one a little bit, and I promise you this is wrapping up soon. But I'm just going to spoiler alert it right now. 
because he's pleaded the fifth with the medical board, we really don't have any sort of motive. All we can have is through his attorneys who say that they've spoken to him. And remember, again, with Richard Blake, he said that Dr. Husel did not intend on being uh, a mercy killings or, or an angel of death or doing euthanasia. But at the end of the day, he ordered these high doses and at the end of the day, they reached the patients, and that should have never happened. So, it might leave you wondering, how did it happen? So, here's another crash course I'm about to take you on regarding orders in the hospital, especially when it comes to electronic orders. So, when a physician orders a medication in the hospital, and during this time frame, we're talking about everything is now electronic and... In 2013, it was electronic at that point, too. So this is what happens. A doctor puts in an order, and oftentimes they will encounter these pop-ups or these hard stops that alert that physician that a patient might be allergic to a medication that they're trying to order, or they'll have a pop-up that alerts them to a dosage that's beyond a certain guideline. And these are safeguards that help to raise that red flag up so a doctor can recheck the order before signing off on it. I've had doctors who've accidentally done a typo. They put another zero in, not intentionally, and they get a hard stop and they go, oh, shoot, I didn't mean to order 10,000 of that. I meant to order 100 of that. And so they fix it, they address it, and things are remedied and that patient is safe and there is good and everything's okay. These are the safeguards that help us to help our patients and these are the safeguards that help to keep people safe, right? So this would be the first safety check that Dr. Husel would somehow have to bypass. Now this order is in the computer and the nurse and the pharmacist can see it in the system. Now if it's me and I see an order to give a dose of 400 micrograms of fentanyl to a patient, I'm gonna be getting in touch with that doctor to see if they made a typo, if it was an error. And I know that the pharmacist when they see that order, they're going to be calling that doctor too to see if that was an error, if that was a typo. So how did Dr. Husel bypass all that? Most of the deaths happen during the night shift. And I mention that because night shift is where more of the newer nursing staff start off, like fresh out of school, new grad nurses. You essentially do your time coming off as a new grad and you go into the night shift for a good chunk of time before you can even consider moving to another shift, like a mid-shift or a day shift. Now, there are extenuating circumstances where people can change their shifts sooner, but in my experience, you usually kind of cut your teeth for a year or so on night shift, and then you can kind of move to a different shift if you need to. So you graduate with your shiny new diploma, you take your boards, you get your license, you find your first job, you get your training, you spend months on orientation, you come off of orientation into night shift on your own, and you stay there for at least a year or so before you approach management. Now, this meant that Dr. Husel had newer nurses without a significant knowledge base to draw from at his disposal to charm, educate, captivate, and most of all, manipulate. And it seems as though even with more experienced and seasoned nurses, he found ways around by getting the medications out of the machine, the dispensing machine, 
and administering them to the patients himself. They went through some of his charting, they went through some of the things that were done, and they realized that Dr. Husel had pulled meds for patients, and then that medication administration was never recorded. But because the machines can keep a running tally of who pulls out what, you have your own login, you have your own, usually it's a finger scanner, that allows you to get medications out, it essentially keeps track of who is taking what medications out. So they were able to match up that I believe on one patient, he had administered a dose of fentanyl, a high dose of fentanyl, and it never got recorded on the medical record, but it was recorded that he was the person who took out the vial. Now you got to think about how this was in place before everything came to light. So now I'm, I'm more than sure that doctors are not allowed to get into the med room, much less gain access to the medication dispensing systems at Mount Carmel West. But at this time, apparently the doctors were able to do so. Now, as for the pharmacists, they have to review all medication orders before approving them to be pulled and administered to a patient. However, if you think about how many medications are ordered by doctors in just one hour, much less the entirety of a 12-hour shift, you would constantly be running behind with approving every single order if you worked in pharmacy. And that's why they have these pre-approval options that allows the docs to order that med and essentially have it approved immediately after they sign it. And sometimes they can code it as an emergency medication, so then it really bypasses the system and you can grab it real quick. Now, this can help in settings such as the ER and critical care units like intensive care units when a medication is needed immediately from that medication dispensing machine. It's supposed to be used for those emergent events, like a patient gets combative or starts seizing, and you need medications immediately to keep these patients safe and keep them stable. So for Dr. Husel, he was able to bypass so many safeguards that at the time were lax, and he used those to his advantage in order to get these orders out for these higher doses of fentanyl. But what about the last line of defense with medication administration? Ask any nurse if they were taught that they're the last line of defense for catching medication errors, and they'll say, yes, a thousand times over, yes. And that's because it's true. Ultimately, it's the nurse who pushes the medications into a person. Well, except in some cases, they're taking that away. And maybe that's for a good reason, but that's a whole different topic. But in this case, it would ultimately come down to the nurse to see an order for 1,000 micrograms of fentanyl to be given. And it would be up to the nurse to question it. And it would be up to the nurse to ultimately not give it through that IV to that patient. Now, I can assure you that many nurses have saved doctors from hurting patients by questioning orders. But if a doctor tells you, all the research behind why he wants to give a high dose of fentanyl to a patient, like Dr. Husel apparently liked to do, it would probably be really hard to not be sucked into the logic behind it. But at the end of the day, that dose is just so much to be given through an IV as a one-time push to anyone. And that would be so many vials if you think about it, so many vials to have to pull out and draw up the medication from. And at some point in that med room, you would have to be aware that something just didn't feel right about how much you're going to give. But if that's what this doctor's known for, 
do you question it? Yeah, yeah, you absolutely question it. So that leads into the question of if any other staff had been charged with murder. Now, as of this time, Dr. William Husel is the only person facing criminal charges as well as heaps of civil lawsuits. The nurses and pharmacists who were connected to the high doses of fentanyl were reprimanded by their respective licensing boards, which we touched on a little bit earlier. And some have been named in those lawsuits that have been filed in civil court. Now, they do face that possibility of fines, probation, and complete revocation of their licensure, which, again, that includes his actual current wife, who gave a high dose of fentanyl and that in the civil lawsuit against her where she's named, it says she gave that dose, quote, knowing that such a dose was grossly inappropriate, end quote. Now, in one article, it mentions that the reason why Dr. Husel is the only one with criminal charges is because he was the one who wrote the orders and the nurses and pharmacists were simply following those orders. Now, while they should have used better judgment, they ultimately were just doing the orders. In fact, in one article, it said that it's <laughs> it likened it to postal carriers who deliver packages who don't know that some of them might contain illegal drugs, but that doesn't make the postal carriers drug dealers. And to me, that just reminds me of that Mitch Hedberg bit about how the UPS driver doesn't know that he's actually a drug dealer whenever he delivers things to his house. Rest in peace, Mitch Hedberg. Rest in peace. Now, to me, all of this just leaves a really bad taste in my mouth. I get that nurses weren't purposely going around killing patients like Charles Cullen did or anything to that effect, but I just can't get over the fact that you would have to pull out multiple vials of fentanyl and you'd have to keep drawing it up and never once do you stop and think, eh, this feels like it's a bit too much to be given to one person all at once. If that person normally takes high doses of narcotics, okay, maybe it was like that nurse said before where she looked at the order, she looked at the patient's history, and she realized 200 micrograms of fentanyl is actually probably appropriate for this patient. But if you're ordering 2,000 micrograms of fentanyl to be given to that same patient, you gotta take stock and be like, what in the hell is going on? Now, from the New York Times, the Franklin County Prosecutor Ron O'Brien said investigators focused on cases in which Dr. Husel had administered doses of 500 to 2,000 micrograms of fentanyl to patients, amounts that Mr. O'Brien said caused or hastened the deaths of these patients. He says, I liken it to the burning down of a candle. While there may just be half an inch of wax left, if I blow that candle out, I'm causing that flame to go out sooner than it would naturally. So it ultimately leaves the question of why? What was Dr. William Husel's motive? Well, like I said, he's been tight-lipped because he's also under investigation from the state medical board. And he really hasn't offered a statement. But with his initial attorney, Richard Blake, he said that his client said that he was just trying to provide appropriate palliative and comfort care to dying patients, even though he allegedly did not follow protocol in determining if a patient was brain dead, even though it was determined that six of his victims might have improved 
at the time of their deaths in terms of their treatment. But his original lawyer has said that he'll be surprised if the trial even happens when everything is sorted out. But as it stands, his trial date is currently set for June of 2020. So it might be a while before any sort of explanation is given towards Dr. Husel's actions. Now, some other things of note in the past few weeks and months, Dr. Husel has asked his former employer's parent company, Trinity Health, to pay for his defense in his criminal proceedings. Let that sink in. He asked them to pay for his defense of his murder trial. Well, actually, he didn't ask them. He filed a lawsuit against them. See, he made the claim that they defend their staff all the time against malpractice suits and that his situation, it shouldn't be anything different. And just as I was trying to process that logic, I noticed someone in the photo that was taken of him walking out with his new legal defense team. My friends, Dr. William Husel has hired Jose Baez to join his defense team. Let that sink in too. And because it was at this point, I threw my hands up, tossed my pen in the air, and walked away from my computer. Because, of course, if it's sensational, Jose Baez is somehow seemingly nearby. So at the end of the day, this is definitely a case that is just beginning to sort of catch catch its stride. And, and really, in 2020, it's going to be one of those ones that I know I'm going to be keeping an eye on and definitely get some follow up on it. It upsets me that so many people failed these victims in their families. And even when the concerns were raised, it took three complaints, formal complaints, for the hospital to do something. And I don't even know at this point the amount of people who might have reported him in different ways, who might have caught him in 2013. We don't know any of it right now, but for five years, Dr. Husel prescribed high doses of fentanyl and got away with it. Now, in this next year, I have no doubts that this case will continue to frustrate and infuriate more and more people beyond the victim's families. There will be all sorts of missed opportunities that we will probably see coming into light in terms of documentation, in terms of people who filed different complaints that fell through the cracks. There were things that were probably overlooked, perhaps in 2013 when he started, but it leaves a question in my mind and maybe in yours. Is Dr. William Husel a cold-blooded serial killer who found victims in his chosen career? Or is he a man who wanted the best for his patients and only wanted to take away their pain, believing that in all things he does as a physician, he would always make sure to do no harm. <laughs>